0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. Here is Pastor Nick.
1: And good morning. Could you please open with me? to the book of Acts chapter 21. On Sunday mornings right now, we're currently going through a study uh, through the book of Acts. We're going through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That's the way we like to study a lot here at Whitefields. And our series is called Revolution. And In this series, we're looking at the history of earliest Christianity and the revolution that took place in the wake of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. This revolution is something which continues on even to this day as the good news of Jesus Christ continues to transform lives, transform families and communities around the world. And the exciting prospect for us is that not only do we get to be affected by this revolution and caught up in it, but we're also invited to be agents of this revolution here in our generation. So would you please bow your heads with me and pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are faithful to Meet us and speak to us and reveal yourself to us. Reveal your heart and your will to us. So, Lord, this morning we ask that you would truly give us ears to hear as Will prayed. And, Lord, that the seed of your word would take root in the soil of our hearts, Lord. That you would let our hearts be good soil that receive your word. And, Lord, that produce fruit to your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a man named Howard Lovecraft. He was an author in the 20th century who wrote horror stories, kind of uh, one of the forerunners of the modern horror genre. And as an author of horror stories, he knew a little bit about the mechanics of fear. I mean, you kind of have to if you're going to write something that really scares people. And so he knew a little bit about the mechanics of fear and what makes people genuinely scared. And here's what he wrote about fear. He said, One of the oldest and strongest emotions of mankind is fear. And the strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. I don't know how many of you can relate to that. You've experienced the fear of the unknown and trepidation that comes with that yourself. All of us have to face the unknown from one degree or another, even every single day. And the fear of the unknown affects different people in different ways. For some people, fear of the unknown has the effect on them that it paralyzes them. It makes them... They just don't do anything. I mean, many people are afraid to commit to responsibilities, to relationships, directions in life because of fear of the unknown. Never done it before. It's unfamiliar. They're afraid that it might not work out, that it might be bad. So instead of doing something, they do nothing. Fear of the unknown paralyzes them. Fear of the unknown is, also, is a reason, for example, why some people stay in abusive relationships or why some people continue in addictions rather than getting help and taking steps to kick those addictions, because even though that addiction or that abusive relationship might be bad, and they, they recognize that it's bad, at least it's familiar, and what scares them more than the abuse or more than the repercussions of an addiction is the unknown, I know it's bad, they might say, but I just can't imagine life without it. I've always known life with it. I'm scared of stepping out into something that's unfamiliar and unknown to me. The reality is that all of us have to face the unknown because none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. I read a statistic this week that said that the average household will experience at least one unexpected major financial setback every 10 years. That might be you know, unexpected medical emergencies or a major repair on an appliance in your house or a car accident. But either way, it's something you didn't expect to happen. You weren't planning for it, but it's major and it costs a lot of money. Furthermore, when tragedy strikes, it usually strikes unexpectedly. I read this, Anne Patchett, writing for the New York Times Magazine, she wrote this. She said, staving off our own suffering and death is one of our favorite national pastimes, whether it's through insurance or exercise, whether it's through checking our cholesterol or finding out what the profile is for a particular disease or condition, and then making sure we don't fit that profile, but she said, but despite our best efforts, tragedy is still, for the most part, random, and it is absolutely coming. Do you know what that means? It means that if tragedy is absolutely random and if it is absolutely coming, uh, it means that no matter how much we plan, uh, major unexpected things are absolutely coming and therefore all of us need courage to face the unknown. Every single one of us needs courage to face the unknown. And that's the title of today's message, by the way. Courage to face the unknown. Here in Acts chapter 21 where we pick up the story we see the Apostle Paul and he's facing an unknown situation. In fact, there is only one thing that he knows for sure, and that is that difficulties and trials and hardships await him. But yet, he doesn't let the fear of the unknown paralyze him. He shows incredible courage, as we're going to see. And the question for us to ask is this, where did Paul get this incredible courage that he had? And how can we get that courage ourselves? So here in chapter 21, uh, we're beginning the final section of the book of Acts. This is the last third of the book, really. And so far along the way, we've been following early Christianity from the days immediately following Jesus' resurrection uh, up until the growth and the spread of the church and the development of a distinct Christian identity, distinct from Judaism. Uh, Then we saw the first missionaries as they went out and planted churches and spread the gospel to new regions of the world. But from chapters 21 through 28, this last part of the book, we move into a section which has historically been called the sufferings of Paul. Because in these chapters, Paul the apostle, this famous missionary, he is now going to face one life-threatening situation after another. And so what is going on here that Paul is going to face all these problems? Well, We read about the beginning of this last week. Paul is now on his way to Jerusalem. After 10 plus years as a missionary in the regions of Turkey and Greece, Paul is now on his way to Jerusalem. And here's what he said about this journey in the section we read last week. I just want to read it to you again. This is from Acts chapter 20. Paul says, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, That imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know what the future holds for me, but I do know this it's not going to be easy. To head out into the unknown like Paul is doing, this takes an incredible amount of courage. So the question is, where did Paul get this kind of courage, and can we get that same courage ourselves? Where can we get the courage that we need to face the unexpected situations that lie before us in our lives? Paul's courage, as we're going to see, came from the gospel. And here's why, because the gospel gave Paul and gives to us a unique form of humility. That's the first thing. The second thing is the gospel gives us a unique form of hope. That's our outline for today. A unique form of humility and a unique form of hope. That's what gave Paul the courage to face the unknown and what is available to us in the gospel that also gives us the courage to face the unknown. So please read with me Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says this, and when we had parted from them and set sail, We came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Okay, so we read last week about how Paul had this kind of heartfelt, emotional meeting with the Ephesian elders. And now he departs from them. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And you know, whereas Paul was dearly loved by many people in the region around Ephesus, you know, Turkey and Greece, Paul was deeply loved by many people in that region. He had spent over 10 years as a missionary there. The thing is, Paul was not quite as popular in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It was pretty well known by this time in Jerusalem that Paul was teaching that the Mosaic law, right? This is a ceremonial Jewish religious practices, the dietary law, the animal sacrifices. Paul was teaching that these things do not make a person clean before God. He taught that the only way to be made clean before God is by putting your faith in what Jesus did for you on your behalf by dying on the cross and taking the penalty for your sins. And all the Jewish traditions and laws and customs, therefore, were actually foreshadowings of what was to come in Jesus. And so Paul taught that Gentiles could come in and believe in the Messiah. They could believe in Jesus Christ without having to adopt any of the Jewish religious customs and traditions because those things don't make you clean before before God, anyway. And word of this had gotten back to Jerusalem, and a great number of people there for this reason. They didn't like Paul. They considered him an enemy to Jewish culture and tradition. And one of the things which Paul is hoping to accomplish on this trip to Jerusalem, he's wanting to prove to these people that that's not the case. That he does indeed love Jewish culture and tradition, and he even practices them himself. And also, as he comes to Jerusalem, we know that he's bringing a sizable financial gift, an offering, collected from the Gentile, the Greek-speaking Christians in Turkey and Greece, and this is kind of a goodwill offering that he's offering from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians to kind of be an olive branch between them. So we continue from verse 2. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo." And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So here they are, they're making their way through the Mediterranean Sea, working their way from, you know, modern day uh, west coast of Turkey down to Jerusalem. And they get to the city of Tyre, which is uh, north of Israel there, and uh, they decide they, they have some time to disembark. And so they find out where the Christians in that city are, and they meet up with them. And these people begin speaking to Paul, we read, and it says, through the Spirit they're telling him not to continue on to Jerusalem. Now that's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of a a bit of a quandary there, right? Because the question is, wait, is the Holy Spirit telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Or, Or is it that the Holy Spirit's merely warning Paul that danger awaits him if he goes to Jerusalem? And the conclusion that these people made, therefore, was that Paul shouldn't go. But that was really just their interpretation.
0: You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings online, or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message.
1: Because here's the thing. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 that the reason he was going to Jerusalem was because the Holy Spirit was telling him to go to Jerusalem. So the question is, is the Holy Spirit somehow contradicting himself? Did the Holy Spirit change his mind along the way? Now, it would seem to me, from looking at the different passages which talk about this, that the Holy Spirit was warning Paul that danger and trouble awaited him in Jerusalem, and it was these people's interpretation of that warning that they said, Paul, therefore you shouldn't go, right? Because our natural inclination is to want to avoid hardship and trials and difficulties. But here's the very interesting thing, the very profound truth that we see at work here in Paul's life. And that's this, sometimes God's plan for your life includes hardship and difficulty. Do you realize that? Sometimes the path that God has laid out for you leads through trials and suffering. That was certainly the case with Paul. In the end, we're going to see how God is going to do great things in and through Paul's life. But the road to get to those things leads through hardship. In fact, if you remember back to Acts chapter 9, where we saw Paul's conversion. God said explicitly to Ananias, who was the person who went and prayed for Paul right after he had been converted, God told Ananias this in Acts chapter nine. He said, he, that's Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You see, the path that God had chosen for Paul's life led through hardship and difficulty. That was part of the plan. You know, for other people though, when they thought about this, their immediate reaction was to say, Paul, there's hardship ahead, there's difficulty ahead. Surely that means that you shouldn't go. Surely that couldn't be from God because their assumption was, and I think it's a common assumption that people have even today, that it couldn't possibly be that God would choose a path of difficulty and hardship for one of his children whom he loves. But in fact, that's exactly what we see. As we see, God did have a plan for Paul's life, and it was indeed a good plan. It was a plan to use Paul in significant ways and do good things in his life. He was a chosen instrument of God to carry his name even before kings, and we're gonna see that happen before we get to the end of this book. But see, the path that led to all those good things, it led through hardship and difficulty. Now, I wonder about us. I wonder if sometimes we are more focused on preserving our comfort and security and avoiding difficulty than we are on doing the will of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a famous German theologian who, who lived during World War II and he publicly opposed Hitler in Germany during World War II. He eventually lost his life for it. This is what he said about this. He said, Christianity is less about cautiously avoiding sin than it is about courageously doing the will of God. See, Bonhoeffer had come to the United States to get away from Germany and what was happening in Germany when the Nazi party came to power before the war began. But when the war began and things started to get really bad in Germany and the Nazis even took control of the churches, Bonhoeffer decided that he needed to return to Germany. And everyone around him told him, not to go. They said, no, don't go. Why why would you go there? Everybody's trying to leave there right now. Stay here where you're safe in the United States, right? If you go there, they're going to put you in prison or worse. But Bonhoeffer said, no. No, see, this is what it's all about. It's about courageously doing the will of God. And so he went to Germany. He began an underground movement of churches who refused to bow the knee to the Nazi party. They were called the Confessing Church. And he opposed Hitler publicly and he taught Christians to do the same. And eventually he did lose his life for it. But see, that's the same kind of attitude we see here with Paul. A man courageously doing the will of God, not knowing what's going to happen, only that if he follows the path that God has laid before him, it will indeed lead to to trials and difficulties and hardships. Now think about that. Isn't that just a radical way of thinking? It's very different than the way our culture tends to naturally think. Right? That, That God's will for your life as a God who loves you that his plan for your life might include difficult things. But yet, in spite of that, his plan for your life is good. See, I don't want to ruin the story for you, but I do want to give you a preview of what's going to happen. I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit. See, here's what's going to happen. Paul is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get there soon. And he's going to be beaten. He's going to be arrested. He's going to, be, he's going to end up being uh, taken to Rome as a prisoner. He's going to have all kinds of false accusations thrown at him. Now, you might remember going to Rome was something that Paul had always dreamed of doing. It was something that he wanted to do for a very long time now. The only thing is, he probably didn't expect that he would end up going there as a prisoner. But at least he got a free ride and he got a free place to stay, right? So there was a little bit of icing on the cake. But during his time in Rome as a prisoner, he, he picked up the pen. He used the free time that he had. He picked up the pen and he wrote four letters, which are now books of the Bible. They're in our New Testament. They're known as the prison epistles. These are the letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and Philemon. And among those letters, the letter to the Philippians really gives us the most insight into Paul's mental and emotional and spiritual state during his imprisonment. And that's what's so interesting about it, because the letter to the Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. Because throughout the letter, that's all Paul wants to talk about. He's in prison, but his heart is overwhelmed with joy. He wants the people reading the letter to also be full of joy. He says, because we have the ultimate reason to have joy, no matter what circumstances we're in, because of the gospel, because we're loved and accepted by God through what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and we have the hope of eternal life. do you get my point here? Here's the point. The road that God called Paul to walk down led through great hardship, and yet in the end, Paul was able to say, God had a good plan for my life, and my heart is full of joy. It it was a hard road, but it was a good road, and it was more than worth it, and I am full of joy in the end. So here's the thought that this section really leaves us with and wants us to really ponder and think about It's this, what if God's plan for your life, what if God's calling for your life is something hard, is a path that leads through trials and difficulties? You'll certainly need a lot of courage to walk that road, I'll tell you, just as Paul needed a lot of courage to walk that road himself. At one point in our lives or another, that's gonna be all of us. And so where did Paul draw this incredible courage from? And where do we get that kind of courage from ourselves? Well, let's continue on, and we'll see as we go on. We're going to read from verse five. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we agreed. Uh, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Do you guys remember Philip? This isn't the first time we've met Philip here in the book of Acts. We first met Philip back in Acts chapter 6, when you remember there was this kind of benevolence ministry that the church had to widows at that time, and they chose seven leaders from among them to oversee their benevolence ministry to the widows. And Philip was one of those seven. Now, do you remember who else was one of those seven? Really, there's only two that really stick in people's minds. One was Philip. The other one was a man named Stephen. remember Stephen uh, was one of the seven also along with Philip, so they worked together. But do you also remember what was interesting about Stephen? He was the first martyr of the Christian church, the first person killed for his faith. And do you remember who the person was who was behind the murder of Stephen? The one who accused Stephen of blasphemy, the one who facilitated Stephen being stoned to death, the one who held the coats of the other people, not willing to bloody his own hands, but facilitating it so other people could kill Stephen, Philip's friend? It was Paul. Paul was the one behind the great persecution of Christians, which had driven Philip himself and many other Christians out of Jerusalem, fleeing for their lives. And now here we are 20 years later, and who comes knocking on Philip's door? It's Paul, the man who killed his friends, the man who, who started a persecution against his friends that caused even Philip to not live in Jerusalem. This is the whole reason he's in Caesarea to begin with, is because he was running away from the persecution, which was started by this man, Paul. And here he is knocking at his door. I wonder what Philip and Paul said to each other as they met face to face for the first time. I wonder if they talked about Stephen. I imagine, though, that they embraced each other. It says that Philip invited Paul to stay in his home as his guest. You see, here's the thing. Philip realized that whatever had happened in the past, it was buried beneath the blood of Calvary. And because of that, Philip was able to forgive and even to embrace Paul and treat him as a brother. See, that's the power of the gospel. And I wonder if there's anybody like that in your life. Somebody who you need to do this with. You need to say, you know, whatever was in the past, it's buried beneath the blood of Calvary. Whatever you did in the past that hurt me or offended me, God has forgiven me, and so therefore I'm going to forgive you. See, here's the thing about bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. If you hold on to these things, it's like a prison that you lock yourself in, but guess who's holding the key? You are, right? Holding on to resentment and unforgiveness, it's been said, is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies, In the end, you're the one who suffers, not them. You see, I love that Philip welcomes Paul into his home as a brother. God forgave Paul, and Philip did too. Let's continue from verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, "'Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles.' And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem, but Paul answered, "'What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus.'" And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Once again, this message comes to Paul. If you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. And these people who love Paul, they urge him not to go. And we see that Luke includes himself in this. He uses the word we because Luke was the writer of this book. He was part of that group. And he says, We saw this and we said, No, Paul, don't do it. Don't go. They don't want to see him suffer. They say, don't go. There must be some other way. You don't need to do this. Think of all the good you can do not being imprisoned. See, what Paul knows, that even though difficulty awaits him on this path, God has called him to go to Jerusalem. So the question is, where does Paul get the courage to do this? And where can we get that kind of courage? For Paul and for us, it comes from the promise of the gospel the message of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And here's the first thing we see. The reason the gospel gives us courage, the reason Paul had courage, the reason we can have courage is because the gospel gives us a unique form of humility. See, there are two things that Paul says here that show us that. The first is what we read from chapter 20, where he says this, I know that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I don't count my life as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course that God laid before me in the ministry of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And now the second one is here in chapter 21, verse 13, where he says, I am not only ready to be imprisoned, I'm even ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying there's something I care about more than my own comfort and safety. There's something else that I care about that's more important to me, that's more precious to me than my own comfort and safety. And and let me tell you, see, that is the basis of courage. This is the basis of courage, the beginning of courage, caring about something else more than you care about your own comfort and safety. See, true courage comes when there's something you care about more than yourself. And that's why, in order to have incredible courage, you must have incredible humility.
0: You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live-streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road, and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at radio.com.